moving on to the topic at hand this morning, I'm sure all of us love a good story. And the story in Acts 12 that we're going to be looking at this morning is a really good one. It has a plot that starts very stark and dark and ends in light. The setting of it is in the heart of Jerusalem, where there have been tight cultural and spiritual tension among Christians, the Jews, and people in Roman power. And this is all happening during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, also known as the Passover. It's told to us in the third-person view by the author Luke, likely written in Rome in A.D. 70-90, although some believe it could have been written even earlier. It showcases a conflict. Everybody loves conflict in a story, right? Between And, and showcases a, a strong agenda of people in power versus the powerless in both the Christians and the Jews. And it provides a host of rich characters, including a power-hungry Jewish dictator, an influential Christian, and someone who is a part of Jesus' inner circle facing death, someone who is called a servant girl, uh, named only once in the entire book of Acts. It also includes an angel. It also includes members of powerful soldiers, 16 of them, who fail an important mission It includes a wealthy widow, a powerful contingent of people invited into this widow's home to pray, and other important leaders in the early church who are part of Jesus' inner circle who was killed. And it illustrates the life of early house churches. And I did prepare a little bulletin insert for you to take notes on. It's kind of just a way to include some information I don't have time to go into, but I did include some references to other early churches, and there's references to about at least six of them in the New Testament. But we're reminded in this chapter in Acts 12 how Christians persevered when they were not, when they were not blessed with facilities and campuses like the ones that we have here. And we also learn that there is more than one Mary in scripture. A lot of us know Mary, the mother of Jesus. We're not referring to that Mary in Acts 12. There was the Mary of Jesus. There was also Mary Magdalene. There was Mary of Bethany, who was the sister to Martha and Lazarus. There was Mary, the mother of James, who also was the wife of Cleopas, and she was maybe present at Jesus' crucifixion. There was Mary, the mother of John Mark, and then there's another Mary in Romans. 16. Now, I shared some of this talk with some of the call committee members and some of our small group members. I can see you rolling some of your eyes out there thinking I'm going to just repeat myself from what we talked about, but I'm not going to repeat myself, so rest assured, all right? The really great thing I love about this story we're going to be looking at from Acts 12 is it has an underdog. Don't all of us love an underdog? Say yes if you love an underdog. And I am going to read just a short excerpt from the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame that illustrates one of the greatest underdog comeback stories of all sports history. And I'm reading excerpts, so listen up here. The 1980 United States Olympic hockey team will forever remain etched in our memories as one of the greatest sporting events of all time. In fact, Sports Illustrated select the team's victory over the Soviet Union en route to winning the gold medal as the number one 
sports moments of the 20th century. It was a magical ride that happened amidst the backdrop of the Iranian hostage crisis and Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, events that now made this the fabled miracle on ice even more impactful in American history. The coach of the squad was Herb Brooks, who was no stranger to the U.S. Olympic hockey program. After being the last man cut from the gold medal team's roster in 1960, Brooks went on to play in the 1964 and 1968 Olympic teams, as well as five other U.S. national teams. Brooks, who had just finished leading the University of Minnesota's Golden Gophers to the national championship in 1979, now had the responsibility of selecting the 20 players to represent the United States Olympic team. Brooks didn't take any chances. He went on to what he knew and selected local boys. So while 12 of the 20 players on the final roster were native Minnesotans, nine of those 12 players were whom Brooks knew as that he had coached with the Gophers. And he's quoted as saying, having played international hockey for so many years, it gives me an awfully warm feeling to be selected as head coach for the 1980 Olympics. He said of his new job, I'm extremely honored and humbled. Well, answering the Winter Olympic Games, the team was the underdog with a 10-3 defeat by the Soviets in the final exhibition game in New York City's Madison Square Garden. Though seeded seventh in the 12-nation pool, the American took on Sweden in the opening game. They upset the Czechoslovakians and then Norway and Romania. Only West Germany, the team that knocked them out of the bronze medal in 1976, stood in the way of getting them into the medal round. Down 2-0 in the first, the U.S. went on to win 4-2 over the Germans. This gave the Americans a date with the Soviets, who had outscored their opponents 51 11 through their first games, and were another of a long line of dynasty teams. In that game, in the final 10 minutes, were probably the longest in U.S. hockey history, but the Americans held on as goalie Jim Craig played brilliantly down the stretch. Then as the crowd counted down the final seconds, Al Michaels shouted, do you believe in miracles? Yes, and with that, the Americans had made it into the gold medal game. And then in the final game against Finland, the Americans were down 1-0 early in the second period, but got on the board at 439. The Finns regained the lead, however, and went on to be, went into the third up 2-1. Phil Verkota found the back of the net at 225, and with that, the Americans started to smell blood and immediately went for the jugular. And just three minutes later, Robbie McClanahan went a five-hole with a Mark Johnson to pass to give the U.S. a 3-2 lead. Johnson then saved the day by adding a shorthanded backhand goal of his own just minutes later to, to give the U.S. a two-goal safety net. And from there, Jim Craig hung on in the final minutes of the game as Al Michaels this time screamed, this impossible dream comes true. It was suddenly pandemonium at Lake Placid as the team threw down their hockey pucks and the crowd formed a human pile of the center ice to the chance of USA, USA. Well, if you could please stand with me as I read our scripture this morning, Acts 12, 1 through 19. And this is the miraculous escape from prison, Peter's miraculous escape from prison. 
It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the mother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening that and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept on insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had made a thorough examination, he cross-examined the guards in order that they might be executed. Lord, as we stand here and think back on this story that's so rich in its plot, its characters, its conflict, its setting, we want to just set ourselves aside and ask that you would speak through our minds and hearts this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. And again, I wanted to kind of summarize some of these events, our scripture this morning, leading up to the arrest of Peter. First, James was the son of Zebedee and is noted as killed in the first verses of Acts. If you remember James, he was one of the original 12 disciples, the only apostle's death who was recorded. So you can imagine how this had impacted the early church, having him killed. We also read about Agrippa the first, also likely killed and tortured many other Christians in self-perceived acts of diplomacy to appease the Jews. We read earlier in Acts that Stephen had also been killed, so there had been some martyrdom of Christians. 
Now Peter's life is in the balance. And you can only imagine what this group of people were thinking. James was killed. Peter was killed. Our influential inner circle of believers is maybe evaporating. So they were gathered in this home. And there's maybe a mix of tragedy and beauty here where we read earlier in Acts 4 through 5 where we read how rich the Christian community was, how they sacrificed for one another, and now they're in this period where they don't know what's going to happen to their community. And then we turn to our underdog, Rhoda, who's only mentioned once in the Bible. She has a brief appearance. She's noted as a servant girl, so she's young. She might be a teenager, maybe 16, 17 years old. And I did note other influential young leaders in your handout. Her role that we know of is to follow instructions. She does not lead or proclaim or teach. She has no position of influence or apparently no schedule. She's up late answering the door. Despite all of these things, she knows Peter's voice. She's connected somehow to him. And she does not need to see him to know him. We read that in Acts 12. And doing what we would think of answering the door, she responds in joy and tells the others. Think about that for just a minute. We don't know if she was with this group of people in Acts praying. We don't know if she was with them at that time. But she was available to come answer the door. And it seems like her goal is to connect with others and letting them know that their prayer is answered. And through her position in the home, she is the first one to answer the door, but she is the only one of this esteemed group to, quote-unquote, get it. Consider the irony as well between the access Peter had at those prison gates where so many things happened in his favor and he was miraculously released and the irony of him entering Mary's home. Would you say that there was a discrepancy? Maybe when there maybe shouldn't have been. And in this moment, Rhoda could have doubted herself. She could have ran to her room crying or thought, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I am out of my mind. But she didn't. Just a backdrop too, this isn't the first time underdogs have been discounted in scripture and some of the early leaders of the church were mocked and Luke 24 1 through 12 a group of women are mocked if you recall and I'm just going to read just a portion of that when these women came back from the tomb they told all these things to the 11 and all the others it was Mary Magdalene Joanna Mary the mother of James and the others with them who told us to the apostles But they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And then consider how Jesus himself predicted how he would be mocked in Matthew 20, 19, Mark 10, 34, and Luke 18, 32. And this mocking of Christ took place before his crucifixion, immediately following his trial, and when he was being crucified. So consider that as well. And then consider this group that we're with here in Acts 12. Despite being surrounded by some of the most influential people in 
what was known at that time as the way at that time, Rhoda shines through as the only person with clarity and discernment. Would you agree that we all have Rhodas in our life who we sometimes dismiss because their message is too radical or they come at us without a position of power or influence? Some of us pride ourselves on doing all of the right things spiritually, but when we're really needed by God, we're unavailable or we're undiscerning to respond. I want to thank Barnabas Nyaba when we were meeting as a squirrel group and talking about this verse from Acts 12. He was the person who made this comment that any of us are available to use by God. And wouldn't you agree, even the Rhodas? What are your circumstances now? And do you believe that God can use you here at Living Word Fellowship or the other places where you might have influence? Well, the second point that I wanted to make is that rather than silencing people because of their position, let's listen to them. In John 4, some of you are familiar with that passage where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. That could have been an episode where Jesus could have ignored her or passed her by because of her lowly position as a Samaritan. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, we read, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly because of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I shared with our small group when we met several weeks ago that Rhoda was mocked. Well, first, Peter knocked. Rhoda was mocked, and everyone was shocked. There's sort of some alliteration there. And it was a common belief at that time that people who died sometimes were represented by angels. But Rhoda does not buy into this. She does not stop her persistence because she is young or powerless or out of her mind, as the others called her. Think about the voices we have in our church who may not have power. We have a really powerful youth voice, I think, and I'm sure a lot of you would agree. Many of us are committed youth volunteers, and I, I'm sure many of us are grateful for how our youth lead us sometimes in worship, I believe, somewhere up here this past week. They sometimes help read, read scripture. Uh, they showcase their talents before us in our annual Christmas musical or share their testimony during our confirmation classes. But are we ready to hear their voice? What if the adults and the youth change places during the Christmas musical? Do we think it would have the same impact with the roles reversed? Are we as adults committed to learning as much scripture as some of our youth learn even in one week in some of our Awana classes that we host? I did want to put a plug out to our youth, and I do see some of our youth leaders here today that we are going to be calling on some of you to kind of form an informal committee as we invite some of our pastoral candidates to interview. We are going to be looking to you to get your input. So your voice is going to become important. We also have in our midst uh, those from other cultures, socioeconomic backgrounds or faith backgrounds. I had the opportunity several years ago, it was actually in 2018 with Barnabas Nayaba, and I was stunned when I, we were involved in that project by meeting so many other people from Dickinson 
who are from the continent of Africa. I learned there was probably about a thousand or so people who live in Dickinson who are from any one of about 42 countries that represent the continent of Africa. We have a growing contingent of people from Africa here in Dickinson, and that's something that's fueled by the jobs we have here. It's fueled by the community that's being built here that attracts and invites others here. Some of you might know Sharon O'Brien, who sometimes serves out there in the fellowship hall. Sharon is originally from, from England. This past spring, as a, a youth Awana leader, we invited um, a fifth grader named Deanna, who's a brand new immigrant from the Ukraine to our Awana group. She knows broken English. She knew probably 15 words in English. Uh, she's attending Jefferson Elementary School, which is uh, nearby over here. She'd only been in there for a couple of months. And it was interesting to see how she entirely changed the dynamic of our Awana group that meets in the church office, which I tell you, that group could be just totally chaos. You wouldn't believe some of the stuff that goes on in that church office with that Awana group. But she totally changed the dynamic to more of a peaceful atmosphere and with a lot of the kids who were desiring to connect with her. So it's really great to see Deanna. We're going to have more uh, Ukrainian immigrants likely moving to Dickinson. So consider these voices that we have in our church, growing voices that we can connect with who are maybe not the voices that we're, we're hearing from now, but as we move forward, especially with uh, another pastoral position and our, as our youth contingent continues to grow, these voices are going to continue to become important to us. Lastly, I wanted us to consider and to believe God responds when we pray. And just to give some background on this miraculous release of Peter from prison, Peter was in what we would know now is a maximum security prison, likely somewhere in Jerusalem. He was guarded by a contingent of a total of 16 soldiers, they were broken up into squads of four who worked four day shifts, four three-hour shifts during the day and then three at night. Two guarded him at all times when he was in his cell. He was also shackled on both arms. So you can imagine being shackled on both arms, having two soldiers by your side, and then two soldiers out in front of your cell. Peter had previously escaped the Sanhedrin. We read about that in Acts 4. And there's much to read, and you can read so much about it in Acts in terms of how the church prayed earnestly for his release. Truly, the early church was a church that prayed. Herod Agrippa, and now this is not the same Herod that we read about in Jesus' crucifixion. This is a later Herod who was also named Agrippa. He had planned to put Peter to death on a public trial after the Passover. And again, you can only imagine during this heightened time how people thought that their spiritual leader was going to be put to death. Consider all of the obstacles that were in the way of Peter's potential release. Consider his hands in Acts 12, 7. The soldiers in Acts 12, 6. The other end of those chains, the door in Acts 12, 6 of his prison cell, the two guards in Acts 12, 6, on the other side of the door, the first and the second guard posts, Acts 12, 10, and the iron gate 
Acts 12.10. There were 10 obstacles that have potentially gotten in Peter's way that he moved past. And consider how so much of this story about Peter's release does not make any sense to us at all. We would think that the angel would be kind of a stealthy character, maybe kind of working quietly to get Peter out of prison. But that was not the case. He was not at all stealthy. In fact, upon his arrival, he lit up the prison. We read, light shone in the prison in Acts 12, 7. We also read that he struck in Acts 12, 12, 7, Peter. He talked to him, and since Peter had been raised up, his chains probably made noise when they fell off his hands. You can remember, you know, trying to picture these enormous shackles. They're released. You can imagine the thud that would have hit the floor and caused a sound in the cell. And then you have to ask yourself the question, why didn't the soldiers wake up who were guarding prison? I mean, they could have been, they were ultimately executed, but they weren't even asleep. We read they were keeping the prison in Acts 12, 6, as they were supposed to, but the angel of the Lord had made them see and hear nothing. And then you have to ask yourself, how rushed was this prison break? You think the angel would have got Peter out of that prison just like that. Come on, let's get out of here. But that's not what we read. The angel even told and waited for Peter to get dressed properly. We read, then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. In Acts 12, 8. And what did Peter think was happening to him? Since he had been asleep and he did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He didn't know really what was happening to him until after the fact. He probably thought he was enjoying maybe a good dream. God's miraculous guidance of Peter didn't end outside the prison gates. Unless the many who were gathered together praying were praying very loudly, which is doubtful since it would have risked them being arrested as well. And since Peter's visit shocked them, God also miraculously led Peter to them. And it's interesting how Peter goes to Mary's home, known as the house of prayer, and where many influential Christians had gathered. I know our first house in Dickinson where my wife and I lived was known as a tuck-under style home. And we had previously lived in homes that were called Victorians and Craftsmen's, and we had a townhouse at one time. And the house we're in now, we kind of whimsically call a cozy coastal cottage. It's a smaller home. But recently I've been thinking about what God is asking us to call our home. And is it a house of prayer? Is it a place where people gather? What about your home? What do you call your home? Is it a place of prayer? Is it a place where people gather? Do we really believe that God responds when we pray And we were just reading how miraculous the release of Peter was to pass through 10 potential barriers. Or are we just mouthing words when we pray? Think of how God has moved at Living Word Fellowship even in these past six months. We've had a record amount of tithing so much that for the first time in our church history, we have no church debt. We actually have a little savings in our books right now for the first time 
has God been really believing and has God been responding when so many people have prayed over the years when we took out that $900,000 mortgage, people were praying that ultimately it would be paid off. It seems like he has. Maybe God has moved deeply in your life, uh, maybe within a ministry that you have here at the church or maybe even interpersonally. But think about how God is moving. Well, as we close here, I wanted to just have us reflect on a couple of things. First, why did the writer of Acts include this story and record this obscure servant girl named Rhoda when there likely were other influential Christians in the room that he could have focused on and maybe would have made a good story, maybe better story material. Well, maybe the writer had insights into how God's kingdom works. Cliff read for us this morning the parable of the workers in the vineyard from Matthew 20. And I just wanted to have us reflect on that verse 16 for just a minute, which says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. So maybe the writer of Acts wanted us to see, as God has used so many other writers in the Bible, to show how the powerless, the humble, the young, the disenfranchised, the poor, the educated, the uneducated, can be powerfully used by God. Rhoda is an underdog who rose from obscurity to clarity as a slave girl, and she quickly discerned the truth and proclaimed it. My prayer for all of us at Living Word Fellowship, to all of you this morning, is to use this powerful story of this underdog to step out from the shadows of your life, to become people of influence and clarity by humbly considering our place in God's kingdom. Herb Brooks, that U.S. men's Olympic hockey coach that I referred to earlier, in the final game the U.S. would face uttered these famous words. You were born to be a player. You are meant to be here. The moment is yours. I believe God is telling us here at Living Word Fellowship, you were born to be a Rhoda, a difference maker for my upside down kingdom here in Dickinson or wherever you go, where the first is last and the last is first, no matter what your background is, you are meant to be here. The moment is yours. Lord, we're humbled this morning by this story in Acts 12 with the rich characters, the, the powerful, the influential, and the powerless, the underdog, Rhoda, who's only mentioned once that she's the only one in the room who gets it. Lord, we wonder in our sphere of Christian influence and the people that we come into contact with, are we people who discern and get it? We want to be those people. So we commit our minds, our hearts to you to be people moving into clarity and influence. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.